We're, we've made it into our final chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, and what we have today are three verses. We're going to look at the first three verses of Hebrews 13. And what we have today in these verses, I think, are some verses that have the potential to powerfully shape our church culture. Uh, and I really hope that they do uh, shape our church culture because culture trumps everything else. Uh, there's a famous uh, line from a, a business leader who says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What he means there is he's saying culture is uh, it's the thing that trumps everything else. So you can have amazing strategies. You can have great mission statements, wonderful vision plans, uh, tremendous intentions. But at the end of the day, your culture trumps everything. You know, how the church actually functions and how the church actually lives out uh, day in and day out. That will trump everything else that you might have written on a piece of paper or put on your website. Um, if you've looked for a church, uh, you know that this is true. If you've been a part of a church, you know this is true. I just had a friend who moved, and so I was looking for a church for him in a new place. And, and what you do these days is you look for a church. The first thing is you go to their website. And you look at their website, and you're reading. Uh, you know, you want to check out their statement of faith. What do they believe? Check their mission statements, uh, other things on there. What do they say? What kind of church? How do they describe themselves? What are their intentions, their strategy? Um, but once you do that and you find one that you think fits, well, then you've actually got to visit. And you know when you visit, that's when you find out what the church is really like. Because you can, you can go to a church website and you can find that we're a friendly church. Right? Just this, is, this is one of their values, being friendly. And it's all over the website and this is, this is who we are. We're a friendly church. Okay, and you're like, this is, this is great. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to this friendly church. And, and you walk in the door, and you go there, and the whole time you're there, nobody talks to you. They're all friendly with one another. They're all talking to each other. They, they're friends with their friends. But, but the new people, you're just like, nobody even knows who I am. And so in, in that instance, what happens there is the culture trumps strategy. The culture eats their intentions for breakfast. They thought that they were a friendly church. They proclaimed they are a friendly church, but in reality, they weren't. And so you walk away from there saying, well, what they said doesn't matter. How they lived shows me that they were not, in fact, a friendly church. Or you could find a church where you're looking and they say, they've got all this discussion about the gospel on their website. They're a gospel-centered church. They're a grace-centered church. They love grace. They talk about it all the time. It might even be the name of the church, Grace Church. You think a value in our church is grace, but then you go and you visit. And the time that you're there, maybe you go for a little while, and, you, and the whole time you're there, you never hear anyone admit any, any sort of mistake. No, no one confesses sin ever. No one, no one fails. Everybody seems to be perfect and to try really hard to be perfect. And, and you also kind of pick up that, you know, that the kids that aren't perfect, the kind of rambunctious kids in the back, like they're getting all these judgmental stares. And the person who shows up in kind of not-so-nice clothes gets this look. And you realize the culture there, however much they might talk about grace, the culture that you pick up on and that you believe much more than what they say is that this is a judgmental place, that you do have to have things together, that you can't admit your mistakes, and you better look really nice and control your kids when you come here, otherwise you're not accepted. Okay. Now, you don't put that on the website, but that trumps everything else. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, another way to say this, just actions speak louder than words. Right? Actions speak louder than words. Um, which does put me in a bit of a bind, because what, all I do is, I mean, what I'm doing right now is I'm giving you words. Okay? I want to address our culture, I want to help us to have a better culture, but what I have right now is words. Now, thankfully, 
hopefully, the words I'm sharing with you are God's words, you know, based on what he has to say. So these have power, these have transformative uh, strength that can actually do something. But what I want to do is give us some words this morning to describe what our culture should be like, what is the culture that God wants, and as we paint that picture and see, here's what a culture, a, a, a real church culture that God wants, this is what it looks like. As we look at that, it, then we can maybe see, well, here's where we have to change, here's where we're going to go, and it can transform us, it can move us one step closer to what God has for us. Um, so let's look at Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 3, and see what is this picture of church culture that God wants for us today. It's Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. All right, that's our text for this morning, these, these three verses, but there's a lot for us to see here. Because what these verses give us are a fundamental insight into what the culture of the church is supposed to be. So I, I studied really hard this week. I thought about this a lot. I think I've discovered something no one's ever found before. This is a great mystery, okay? So you've got to be ready for this. What is church supposed to be about? Love. Love. Okay, now don't tell anybody. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to go. It's going to be great because this, like, this is revolutionary. No one's ever heard this before, right? Okay, no. Actually, this is like the most obvious thing in the world. If you read the Bible, you know... The church, Christians, are supposed to be characterized by love. That's what our culture is, is supposed to be. Jesus said this a lot of times. One time he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, now that's, that's why we made our mission statement as a church, love God, love people, Multiply disciples, because that's a really good summary of what the Christian life is about. Love, it's about love. It's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's, it's all over the New Testament. It's all over our statements of faith. It's all over our mission statement. But the real question is, is it in our culture? Is it in our culture? Is love the main thing that you experience as a part of the church? Because that's what it's supposed to be. And culture eats intentions for breakfast. So to find out more about whether we're doing this, we really need to look at this passage and, and see what, what is the love. Specifically, what does it look like to have a real culture where love is being lived out in more than just being put on your letterhead or put on the website? And there's two kinds of love mentioned in this passage. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, these two kinds of love. Most of the time we'll be spent on the first kind because that's where the emphasis is. But here's the two kinds of love are first love for God's family and then love for the stranger. Love for God's family and love for the stranger. We'll just take them in order. The first kind of love that God expects in a church is love for God's family. This is what we see in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Okay, so we get a little Greek lesson today. Uh, that, that phrase, brotherly love, is one word. You know it. It's Philadelphia. Okay, Philadelphia. Does anybody know the nickname of Philadelphia? City of Brotherly Love. That's what it's called, the City of Brotherly Love, because that's what the word means. Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's a compound word. Philos is the first half. That means love. And Adelphos uh, is, means brother or sister. 
siblings. So Philadelphia, put them together, brotherly love. Pretty simple. Uh, but it's kind of remarkable the way that word gets used in Scripture. Because the word just means love for a brother. Like, it's just, it's, it's I mean, you'd have love for a spouse, you'd have love for a brother. It's a, it's, it's a love that you have for your siblings. But that word gets used so often in Scripture that it becomes a, like a technical term to talk about Christians. You know, it, it used to just mean love for a sibling, but it's used in Scripture all the time to talk about the, the relationship that we have with one another, brother and sister, love for siblings, the love for another Christian. So what that tells us is that the early church really thought of the church as a family. They really thought of each other as family. The culture in that church was the culture of a family where every Christian considered every other Christian to be a brother and a sister in Christ. Again, this is not revolutionary, right? But, but part of the problem is it's, we're too familiar with this. We read through the Bible, we see brother, we see sister, we see that written in there, and we just gloss right over it like it means nothing. But it's all over the place, and that's really important. The Christians are always calling each other brother or sister. There's something like 250 times in the New Testament when Christians are addressed as brothers or sisters, it is arguably the dominant description of what it means to be a Christian, to be a brother or sister in the family of God. And that's what we are. We are the family of God. The church is God's family. The church is God's family, which should not surprise us if we understand the gospel. Okay, because what happens in the gospel Well, first of all, we all start out as enemies of God. We're all isolated from him. We're all rebelling against him. We're not his children. We're his enemies. We're fighting against him. We say, I don't want you to be my dad. I want to be in charge of my life. I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to go live life my own way. I'm going to rebel against you. And we're enemies because we're enemies of God, rebelling against him. We deserve punishment. We deserve death, in fact. The good news of the gospel is that God loved us so much that he gave his son to die in our place, taking our penalty and offering us the chance to become his children. This is how John 1.12 puts it. Great promise, John 1.12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this is what God offers us in the gospel. He offers us the chance to become his children. If we believe in Jesus, if we accept his death in our place, then we become children of God. Now this, too, is all over the New Testament, all over the place. Sometimes it uses language of being adopted as sons. Sometimes it talks about being heirs. Sometimes it speaks of being born again into a new family. But the idea is very clear. That when you become a Christian, you become a part of a new family. Where God is your father, Jesus is your big brother, and every other Christian is a brother or sister in that family. Because this is true, there's huge implications Because we really are a family with one another, we're supposed to live like we are a family. Because we are a family, because God has adopted us into his family and said, now here's your brothers, here's your sisters, we're supposed to live like that's true. Like we really are brothers and sisters with one another. Which is why Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. 
says, this is what the culture of the church is supposed to look like, a bunch of brothers and sisters loving one another like family. Okay, we're all tracking here, right? This is not controversial. This is, this is why we have it on the letterhead. This looks great on the letterhead. Let's be a family. Yes, we're a family. We're all brothers and sisters. We love each other like family. All right, but what does it really mean? The difficulty comes when we move from that ideal, which no one argues with. The church should be a family. But what does it look like practically for us to live like a family? All right, that's where it gets a little tougher. So I, what I want to give you here are three different ways, and there's lots of ways, okay? There's lots of implications for this. In fact, in our adult Sunday school class, we're looking at the church and what it means to be the church, and we're going to walk through probably more of these over the coming weeks. But I want to give you three big ones today. What does it really look like on the level of culture to live like a family? If we really loved each other like family, what would we do? Well, here's one thing we'd do. We would share our possessions with one another. Okay, that's got a little more teeth to it, doesn't it? Put it on the, on the letterhead. We, we are a family. What's that mean? It means we share our possessions with one another. This is another one that's just inescapable if you read the New Testament. Christians share their stuff with one another just like families do. Okay, so just think about family. Think about your biological family, your blood family. If you've got a kid or a, a brother or sister, and they've got some accident that happens to them, something tragic, right? you, you wouldn't sit there on the sidelines and, and watch them and their family waste away while you've got all this stuff in the bank and say, boy, I wish there was something I could do to help you. That's not how family works. That's not how a healthy family works. Real family says, oh, you're in, you're in trouble, you're struggling, you've got a crisis, I have some abundance right now, so I'm going to sacrifice my stuff for you because we're family, and I'm not going to let you go down. I'm going to take care of you. That's how families work, that's how blood families work, as we care for one another, by sharing our possessions from times of need. And that's exactly what the Christian church is supposed to do. I mean, you just, here's your, another assignment for, for today. Just go home and read the first six chapters of Acts. Just read the first six chapters, it's pretty quick. And what do you see? Ask yourself, what do I see here? I'll tell you what you're going to see. So I'm giving you the answer, but still do it. What you're going to see is you're going to see Christians sharing things with one another. You see people who are in need in crisis, and you've got other folks who have their retirement accounts. Like they didn't have 401ks. In their case, they had fields. They had extra property. And they're like, well, you know what? I've got this extra field, and you're suffering, and you're dying. I'm going to sell this field. I'm going to give this money to the, uh, the people in charge, the apostles, and they're going to distribute it to the folks who need it because we're family. This is who we are. We're in this together. That's what you see all over the place in the New Testament. You see folks giving up their possessions to one another to help people in times of need. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you just get to be a freeloader. And now I'm just part of the church, so I don't do any work, and other people are going to pay for me. There's plenty of stuff in the Bible that talks about that. But that doesn't change the fact that a basic element of what it means to let brotherly love continue is to say, you're my family. And I will not hoard my possessions at your expense. I will share my stuff with you. I will share my possessions with you. We're in this together. All right, that's, so, so this is level of getting down to culture here. This is not just, yeah, we all want this on the website. Do you want this in your church? 
You know, as you look around at the people in this room, the fellow members of this church who have covenanted themselves to be a part of this expression of the family of God, can you say that to these folks and say, you're not in this alone. I mean, we're, we're, we're family now, and I'm not going to hoard my possessions at your expense. I will share my stuff with you as you have need. That's what loving each other like family means. That's, that's, that's letting brotherly love continue. What you also see uh, as you look at the New Testament, how the church functioned, you see that family, uh, if we love each other like family, we share our hearts with one another. So we share our possessions with one another, we also share our hearts with one another. Uh, you, you know this, right? A family isn't simply a group of people who live under one roof and share their possessions. That's, that's not the extent of what it means to be a family. Uh, there's an emotional component to it. Uh, families that are working properly know each other deeply, care about each other deeply. There's an effective component to it. There's, there's real emotional connection within family members. Uh, and this is true of the church family as well. We see this really vividly in some of the language that Paul uses to address his brothers and sisters in Christ. One example is Philippians 4.1. Just listen to this. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, I've got a brother. I don't talk like this to my brother. I call him up on the phone. Oh, brother, it's been so long. since My beloved. It's been so long since we've talked. I long for you. I love you. We may speak like that towards a romantic partner. Um, if we're feeling mushy. Uh, but we don't talk like that in our, in our brother and sister relationships here in our culture. But, but this is the level of affection that, that Paul is demonstrating for us that Christians have towards one another in the family of God. You know, whether you use those words to express it or not or have other ways of expressing it, there's a reality there of a real heart affection, a connection between Paul and these other people. They don't share the same mother. They don't share the same father. They're not blood relatives. They're people who've been bound together by a shared faith in Jesus, and that shared faith in Jesus creates an affection, an emotional bond that is stronger even than the bond between blood brothers and sisters. Look at the language even in, in Hebrews 13.3. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He's saying that there's, there's such solidarity between Christians that when, when your brother in Christ is in prison, it's as if you are in prison. When your sister in Christ is being mistreated, it's as if you are being mistreated because you are bound together in solidarity. There's a unity and affection that's like your biological family, but I would dare say even surpasses it. So the question again, as we bring this to the level of culture, is is that what you feel towards people in this room? Do you share that with the members of this church who have covenanted themselves to be a part of this family of God? And, and, and you've got to, I'm going to say, you have to exclude folks that you're related to by blood or marriage. Because okay, that, that's cheating. We've got enough of those relationships here. So just exclude those. Even cousins, no cousins. Just beyond that, are there people in this room? And again, you don't have the same level of closeness with every single person here, but are there people here with whom you are sharing your heart 
that you are not related to by blood or marriage, that, that you have this sort of connection. Because for brotherly love to continue, it means that there's got to be a sharing of hearts. There's got to be genuine affection for one another. If, if somebody loses their job in your church family, it's like you lost your job. You know, if somebody else uh, has a baby, it's like, it's like you've had a baby. Right? You, you, you share in the joys, you share in the sorrows. There's a real connection there, just like family. Because we are family. That's what it means to love each other like family. We share our possessions, we share our hearts. It also means that we stay and we work through stuff. Okay, we stay and we work through stuff. That's how families work, right? You don't get to quit on your biological family when things get hard. Um, in my biological family, we, we have fights. We have disagreements. We have times where we don't like each other. But when we have those fights, those disagreements, because we're family, we stick it out. We work it out. We stay together. And we resolve the issues and we work through it. You, 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 you do this because you're stuck with one another. You don't get to choose your brothers and sisters. You don't get to choose your parents. You're, you're stuck with your family, and so you have to work through these things. That's supposed to be the reality of the local church, too. That when things don't go exactly right, you, you don't just leave, but you stay and you work through it because you don't just give up on your family. You work it out. Instead of this model, of course, uh, we've chosen the model of, uh, of a store. You know, by we, I mean our, our culture, kind of the way that we do church in our country. We don't think of church so much as a family. We think of it as a store. Now, nobody puts that on their letterhead. Nobody says on their website, we have the premier consumeristic experience of Christianity. And we meet your every need, and uh, you know, the customer is always right. That, but, but we go into churches with those expectations, like church is a store. And so if I'm a customer in a store, like if, I, if I just go to you know, a coffee shop, and I don't like the coffee there, or the music's too loud, or I don't like the people who are there, or a barista treated me rudely, I just leave and I go to another coffee shop. Because I have no family responsibility to that particular store. You know, they can give you as many loyalty cards as they want, but that doesn't make me actually stay there. Okay, but church is different. Family is different. If there's a problem in a family, you stick around and you work it out. And the ideal in Scripture is if there's a problem in a church, you stay and you work it out. So sometimes you've, you've got problems. I mean, some, sometimes, let's say, we all sin, right? So sometimes in the context of the church family, we sin against one another. So what do you do there? Well, you, you work it out. So you sin against your brother, your brother comes to you and he says, hey, you hurt me, and you say, I'm sorry, you forgive me, and you fix it. You don't just hurt someone and then they challenge you and you leave because they dare to challenge you. Or somebody hurt me and so I'm just going to walk away and leave. You, you stay, you work it out, you seek reconciliation just like you would with a brother or sister. Uh, sometimes in the church, the, the, the kind of parental figures, you know, like the, the authority figures in the church, the, the elders, will have to bring some sort of discipline. And when that happens, you say, how dare you discipline me? How dare you tell me how I should live my life? I'm out of here. You know, the, the ideal is that you stay. Like a family, you work it out. You say, well, these people love me. These people know me. These people have even been willing to share their stuff with me. 
And now they're coming with some challenge in my life. I think I better hear this. I think I better work it out. That's how it's supposed to work. Now again, of course, sometimes families are so dysfunctional. I'm talking even blood families here. Sometimes families are so dysfunctional. For your own safety and health, you need to leave that family and put some boundaries in place and distance yourself from it. Like that, Sometimes that happens. And sometimes in local churches, local churches get so dysfunctional and so unhealthy and so broken down that you need to leave that local church and join another one. Okay? But that's the exception, not the rule. Commitment is part of what it means to love like family. So have you done that? Have you done that? Have you said of this group of people, I am committed to you? You know, sometimes I hear wedding vows that people write and they say stuff like, I don't have exactly right, but, but something like, like, I will love you. It, it boils down to, I will love you as long as I love you. Right? Like, there's not this commitment for a lifelong, like, I will love you for the rest of my life, but it's like, as long as our feelings are there, as long as we're, we're really, you know, in, enjoying this, as long as the marriage is working, I'm committed to be with you. And it's like, what is that? That's not a vow. That's a truism. You'll love him as long as you love him. Uh, and I, we act like that sometimes with church. Like, I'm committed here as long as things are the way I want them to be. That's not how family works. We could continue with more implications. Uh, churches, the family is a huge topic. There's lots of things that flow out of this, but, but these are three big ones. I want you to see that when we talk about church as a family, it, it's, you know, it's more than just saying brotherly love. Is, is, it looks good on the letterhead. It means that we share our, our possessions. We share our hearts. We work through issues together. That's what God's calling us to with that simple phrase, let brotherly love continue. So that's the first kind of love, love for God's family. That was the, the biggest point. But there's another one we have to touch on just briefly here because it's right here in verse 2. And it's love for the stranger. See, one of the problems when you begin to emphasize the church as a family is that you can get very inward focused. And you say, okay, the family, here we are. Boom. No more kids. We got it. Lockdown. This is enough relationships. Uh, here's my family. This is good. I'm happy. We're just going to love each other. And you just start looking at each other all the time and you're loving each other. You're always inward focused. And the author of Hebrews says, hey, not so fast. There's other people out there. There's more love that you need to give. And that's what verse 2 says. It says, uh, do not neglect to show hospitality. So here's, here's step two of your Greek lesson. Remember, in uh, the first verse, it was, the word was Philadelphia. Compound word, philos meaning love, and adelphos meaning brother or sister. Well, the word here for hospitality is actually philozenia. Compound word. First word is philos, meaning love. The second one is xenos, meaning stranger. So, so there's two loves commanded here. The first one is Philadelphia, love for your brother. The other is philazania, which is love for the stranger. That's what hospitality is. Literally, it's love for a stranger. This is the complement to family love. As we love one another in the family, we're also opening up our lives and our hearts to people who are not yet a part of the family, inviting them in. That's what hospitality is. I'll just give a little definition here. What's hospitality? Hospitality is welcoming a stranger into your life as a guest. Simple. Hospitality is welcoming a stranger into your life as a guest. Uh, just in some way, inviting a stranger to become a part of your life. The most common way to do this is over a meal. That's what you see a lot. In fact, that's what you see this, uh, this verse 2 
Uh, it's referencing a story that says, Thereby some have entertained angels unaware. In Genesis 18, Abraham, great patriarch, is just sitting around in his house, and some strangers knock on the tent. Uh, and, and he invites them in. And, and he tells Sarah, hey, uh, make some bread. He goes and kills a goat, prepares the goat, makes this whole big feast for these guys. They're just strangers that show up. Uh, it turns out these guys are angels. One of them may, in fact, be God himself. And they bring a promise to Abraham saying, uh, you're going to have a son in the next year. Right? But, but Abraham's a model here. What he's doing, he's, he's offering hospitality. He's got some strangers show up. He says, let me... Uh, make some bread, let me kill a goat, let me give you some food, and they have a meal together. That's a very simple way to express hospitality. It could also be inviting someone into your home, invite a stranger to stay in your home. We had a chance to do that recently uh, over, over Passover. Remember we had a missionary came here, uh, Heather Drake, and she came and gave a presentation from Jews for Jesus on, on what it means for Jesus to be uh, in the Passover. What is the, how do we learn about Christ from the Passover? And part of that deal was, uh, as they came, Jews for Jesus said, hey, we need you to provide a place for her to stay. So we have to pay for a hotel. And so I asked one of you, and, and you said yes, and, and she stayed in your home, and that was an exercise of hospitality. Right? Stranger, don't know her. She stays in your house with her husband, and, 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 and that's a way of inviting them into your life. Okay? But there's all sorts of ways to express hospitality. It's as simple as just inviting them into your life by, by, by meeting a stranger and asking them what their name is and inviting them into your life through conversation. Seeing a person at school or work who always sits alone for lunch and going to sit with them and inviting them into your life and trying to get to know them a little bit. There's all sorts of ways to express it, but at its heart, it's a disposition, a desire to welcome strangers into your life as a way of showing hospitality. And I recognize this is really countercultural. And I don't think it's just because I'm an introvert. I think this is American. Like, we think of our homes as our castles. So if anybody even knocks on the door, that's like an invasion. Okay, like if I'm sitting, I don't care if it's the Girl Scouts or if it's the Mormons or if it's my neighbor. Like, some, I'm sitting at home, you know, I might be wearing pajamas or whatever because this is my house. This is my cat. I don't expect to go outside. Someone knocks on the door. It's like, oh, they're the... You know, the, the Visigoths are coming to take over. What's happening? Like, it's a challenge. Here's the castle, and they're invading my castle by trying to, you know, and I've been on the other side. Like, I go knock on doors. I try to promote events. I try to share the gospel with folks. And you just, just I mean, you see it on people's faces. When you knock on the door and they open up, it's like, how dare you use the doorbell that I built into this house for the express purpose of folks outside letting me know they're here to see me? What, that's just for show. Why are you knocking on my door? They just, we hate it. We don't like to let people into our lives. We don't like to let people into our house. It's not an American cultural value, but I'm telling you, it's a biblical cultural value, and we are called to be a, a biblical Christians more than we're called to be Americans. Because hospitality, really, it's an expression of the gospel. It's an expression of the gospel. We were all strangers. We were all on the outside, and God took the initiative to pursue us through Jesus and to invite us in, to move from being strangers to being friends and to being family. That's the movement of the gospel. That's the movement we're called to imitate. To go out into a world full of strangers and instead of isolating, to welcome them, into, welcome them into our lives as guests and hopefully move them from being strangers to being friends 
grasping family. That's the culture. That's the culture that God wants us to have our church, a culture of love. Love between us as family, sharing our possessions, sharing our hearts, sticking around and working through stuff. And it's, it's, it's a love for strangers, inviting them to come into our lives and be family. All right, so to wrap up, how are we doing? Do you want to talk about that? Maybe we should talk about that. I mean, we could just close the Bibles and say, good sermon, or bad sermon, whatever. Um, no, but, but we have to ask, how are we doing? How am I doing? How are you doing? Just take a, a second. If, if you were to rate yourself right now, give yourself, school's about to start, so give yourself a letter grade. In your own life, how are you doing with love with church family, love towards strangers? All right, how are we doing? As a church, I'd say in terms of our mission statement, I give us an A+. Right, if you look on our, our website, our letterhead, our, you know, love God, love people, multiply disciples, we have this value. We have this value. So A plus for that. But culture eats all that for breakfast. Um, so how are we doing in terms of actual culture? This is very arbitrary, but I'd say maybe a C. That's average. It's not a failure. It's average. Um, we've got some really great bright spots, like, for example, the, the, the lift in the back that we're putting all this construction we're doing. This is an expression of love as family, right? Because not everybody needed a lift. Not everybody needed one. Not everybody's related by blood to somebody who needs one. Uh, we're even thinking about people who aren't even a part of this church yet who might need that. This is an expression of love. So I'm going to sacrifice of my possessions to help pay for remodeling that's going to help people move between floors. Okay? That's a good thing. And there's lots of other good things that are happening as well. So, so don't hear this, you know, this, don't be a victim of grade inflation and think like, oh, C, we must be failing. No, C is not failing, C is average. Because I think even though we've got all these bright spots, um, we do have a ways to go. And one of the things that drove this home is an experience I had with the other elders uh, three weeks ago. Uh, we had a little elder retreat where we got together. Uh, and one of the things we ended up spending most of our time on uh, was just praying for you. And I don't regret that. Uh, it was a very good thing. Uh, but what we did is we just, most of the time on Saturday, um, we went through a list of everybody in the church. And, and we talked about you. And we talked, shared, like, what do you know? How are they struggling? How can we pray for this family or this person? Or what's going on? How can we rejoice uh, with them? You know, what, what do we know? And how can we pray? And then we prayed for you. So if you had a really great Saturday... Um, on July 26th, now you know why. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, praise God for that. Uh, and it was a great experience for us, but one of the takeaways for all of us as we, we walked away from this is we thought, there are some people in this church who are functionally strangers to all of us. Um, you know, and, and we're not talking here about uh, you folks who may have started coming in the last month or so. Okay? Uh, but people with whom we have worshipped on and off for years. Um, we spent Sundays together for a long time. And we are in the same family. We are Christians. We are brothers and sisters. But functionally, we're strangers. We're like estranged family. We don't really know one another. We don't really have that sort of connection. And my suspicion is that if that's true for your elders, for me and the other guys, uh, who, who we have the responsibility that we take seriously to know and to shepherd this flock, 
If that's true for us, it's probably more so true for you that there are even more people for you in your family that you don't even know. Not really. Uh, so that's why I'm giving us a C. I think that's pretty average. Okay, here's something you got to know about me. I've never gotten a C in my life. I don't like, that's, that's the midterm grade, okay? This is not the final grade. We've got a chance to change. We don't have to resign ourselves and say, I guess I'm a C student. We're not C students. Okay, God is calling us towards brotherly love, and we can change by his power. So I, I you know, and I wish at this point that I had a full formed, uh, you know, program or plan I could just drop in your lap and say, here's how we're doing it. We're working on that. We're working on that, but it's probably less than half-baked now, so I'm not going to roll it out to you right today. But I do want to prepare you and get you thinking about these things and say, as we provide some leadership in this area and say, we're going to be doing some certain things to help us to engage one another and moving from stranger to friend to family, as, I want you to brace yourself for that so you can say, oh, I know now why we're doing this, and I want to get on board with this because I think we want to have a culture of brotherly love. So in, in broad sketches, it's probably going to look like uh, some sort of um, structured program where we can eat meals together in one another's homes. Okay, it's probably going to have that sort of shape to it, which is a classic expression of hospitality. Um, and the idea would be as we eat together in our homes, letting people into our castle, we can let each other into our lives and develop those friendships and move towards family. Now, as I say that, I know there's probably some of you that are like, Yes, that sounds awesome. I've been dying to do that. And there's other ones who are like, I hate that idea. That's horrible. I do not want to do that. Okay, and I understand that, but you have to understand this. We have to do something. Okay, we can't just be Americans and say, hey, that's not how we roll. Our culture, our American culture does not get to trump Bible culture. Bible culture trumps American culture. So... We have this calling from God to let brotherly love continue, to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to remember those in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since we are also in the body. So we can't just talk about love, we have to do it. Or as John says, and I'll close with this, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. That's where this all starts. We wouldn't be a family if you hadn't gone out and handpicked each one of us to be a part of it, and we're grateful. We're grateful for that salvation, and we're grateful that you did not just save us for relationship with you, but you saved us for relationship with you and with one another. Life is hard. We cannot do it alone. Lord, you create in us, in this expression of the local church, create in us a culture where we genuinely love one another. And I am convinced that as we do that, we will flourish as people, because that's how you've made us, and we will reach the stranger with the gospel and help change their lives as well. We pray for that to happen in Jesus' name.